Well, welcome back to our 5 p.m. service as we continue to uh, explore this series on Hearts on Fire. Just give me a show of hands if you've been here for the Hearts on Fire series so far. Give me a bit of a wave. Okay, gives me a little bit of an idea how many of us have been on this journey so far in the last few weeks. Uh, our associate uh, minister, Bruce Atkinson, uh, asked me to come. He's away uh, this week, but asked me to come and speak with you today on the topic of John Wesley and the Methodists. And so over the weeks, we have been um, enjoying an array of uh, groundbreaking, um, influential ministers, revivalists, uh, preachers who have impacted not only their generation, uh, but whose influence really still echoes on today. Some of these are George Fox, the unshakable shaker. What a title for a, for a man of God. John Wycliffe, the Bible man. Uh, and John Knox, the, the thundering Scot. Uh, these were men who, who carried a message. Every one of them carried a message. It was truth that was on fire. And I think this is a great definition of revival right there. Truth on fire. And the reason you know, we are looking at these great figures of, of history is because we need to see in our own generation truth that is set on fire. How many would agree with me? We need to see in our generation truth that is set ablaze in men and women's hearts. The word coming alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, in, in church history, as you look through the, through the ages, we've seen revivals and, and movements that have been characterized by great preaching and great uh, teaching and emphasis, in other words, on the Word. But also there have been revivals and there have been uh, renewals that have been characterized by incredible, incredible manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But what we're after as a church, what we're after is a revival, a movement that both joins the Word and the Spirit. A marriage of the Word and the Spirit. This end time movement that has great preaching, but it's also followed by signs and wonders. How many of you are passionate for that? We want to see these two things operating together. And I believe this is why you're here today. It's not just to have our ears tickled with loads of information about what God used to do in church history, but because something within you wants to be a part of what God wants to do in the future and today. Amen? That's why we're here learning these things together. The people who have, have gone before us have lived, they've run their race, they have left their, their legacy, but they're now gone. And there are things, of course, that we can learn from them, transferable principles that we can learn from them to help us be prepared for what God intends to do today and in the future. And so that leads me to our topic that we're looking at today John Wesley and the Methodists. It's been said that John Wesley is arguably the most influential man in 18th century British history, which is quite a statement that's been made by quite a number of people. In fact, it's also been said that his ministry was so influential that it prevented a revolution in England like that which occurred in France. And so his work in the 18th century uh, had a lot of influence on, on British religious and social history in the 19th century afterwards. But John Wesley was an English reformer. He was one of England's greatest spiritual 
leaders, but also he was the one who was the catalyst for, for the great, powerful Methodist revival. And so it played a major role in the revival of religion in the 18th century English life. In fact, if you look on the screen, you'll see a picture of Wesley um, up there. There he is. And uh, in appearance, in fact, he, he didn't um, have a, a particular large uh, uh, stature. Wesley uh, measured only five feet, three inches tall and uh, weighed only 128 pounds. And so, in fact, if you go to Westminster Central Hall, um, where we've done a number of events there, conferences uh, for KT, there's actually a statue of him uh, carrying his Bible. But even though he had a small stature, we know that he, of course, was big in spiritual stature. Amen? God in him was big. God did a lot of things through him to change the nation. Check out on screen this quote by A. Birrell. If you want to get into the last century to feel its pulse throb beneath your finger, ride up and down the country with the greatest force of the 18th century in England, no man ever lived nearer the center than John Wesley. You cannot cut him out of our national life. No single figure influenced so many minds. No single voice touched so many hearts. No other man did such a life work for England. I mean, that gives you a little bit, that whets your appetite a little bit, doesn't it? To want to study who this man was and what God did through him. John Wesley uh, was born in 1703 uh, to, to Mother Susanna Wesley. He was actually uh, one of 19 children. How many know that's a lot of brothers and sisters? Yeah? And, uh, and so that's, uh, he was the 11th child. He was born during the reign of good Queen Anne. And his father was named Samuel uh, Wesley, and he was actually a scholar, and he was passionate about missions work. But John Wesley, he had family uh, that stemmed back to, to, to the Puritan era. And so Bruce, of course, has been speaking about that in the last few weeks. He's been talking about the Puritans. These were groups during, during the 16th and the 17th century. Uh, the Puritans, in a nutshell, were really those who were seeking purity in theology, purity in doctrine, purity in Christian practice. And so John Wesley, uh, interestingly enough, had family roots going back to this era. Uh, they were powerful Puritans. In fact, many of them were actually persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And I think this is something that's quite special. If we just pause there, it's encouraging sometimes for us to do an exercise uh, to, of tracing back in our roots. Maybe some of you have done that before. It's quite an interesting exercise. How many have done that before? You've kind of traced back on your roots. Not many of you. Maybe encourage you to do that. I actually, a few years ago, I was hanging out with my, my grandparents in Wales, and I only just discovered that uh, I had some, some roots that, uh, or my, I think it's my great, great, and maybe another great, I'm not sure, uh, that had ministers that were actually ministering around about the time of the Welsh Revival, and that really encouraged me, and sometimes a helpful exercise to know where your roots go. Um, and so it's clear that John Wesley had a, a powerful heritage. But just before John Wesley's father died, just before Samuel Wesley died, it said that he took John Wesley's hand and said these words. The inward witness, son, the inward witness. This is the strongest proof of Christianity. Then he laid his hands on John and blessed him and said these words. The Christian faith will surely revive in this kingdom. I won't see it, but you shall see it. 
little did, did anyone realize how prophetic this was because later on, John was going to have an experience with the Lord that would catapult him as a major revivalist and the leader of the, the Methodist movement. Uh, John's, uh, Wesley's early life was not without danger either. If you just look on the screen, he almost died, died in a fire in a building at the age of seven. And he was actually amazingly uh, rescued. And afterwards, his mother would often remind him frequently uh, that he was a brand plucked from the burning. Uh, she felt that he had been spared for a purpose and that his purpose was to serve God. Later on, John Wesley went to, to Oxford University uh, in 1720, and it was there where he began to, to become interested about religion, and so, and so forth. he was actually seeking ordination, as you do, and he was very impacted by a book uh, called The Imitation of Christ, which is written by Thomas Kempis. It's a bit of a classic, uh, but look at these words said by John Wesley. I began to see that true religion was seated in the heart. And that God's law extended to all our thoughts as well as words and action. And he resolved to dedicate all of his life to God. Now, it's been said uh, before that, that many other bright young men um, had gone through a curriculum and education like the Wesleys did. But few had the diligence of John Wesley. In fact, his mother and his father, they, they strongly uh, encouraged excellent study habits when, when he was growing up. And so he had a good intellectual mind on him. A few years later, in, in the year uh, 1727, uh, John Wesley decided to take a break from Oxford uh, and, and to become a curate to his father in Lincolnshire. Uh, he did that for about two years. And it was during this time that, that his brother, who was also at Oxford University, Charles Wesley, he also became serious about religion as well. Uh, and a number of them started to, to meet together uh, to pursue a greater depth of religion. And here we, we actually start to learn about George Whitfield. And we're not going to be looking at him a lot today, maybe some other time. But George Whitfield is known uh, as uh, to be one of the greatest evangelists in church history. He was known as the harvester of souls. That's not a bad title to have to your name, is it? The harvester of souls. And so Whitfield, he also went to Oxford University. Uh, as a student, he came into contact with Charles Wesley and then later on John Wesley. And, and they were making a stand uh, for religion. They were making a stand for, for holiness. And George Whitfield actually jo joined uh, this group called the Holy Club. That's what they called themselves because of their disciplined life of prayer uh, and their good works. And so he, he joined them in their pursuit of godliness. But I find it very interesting that God somehow brought all of these men together at the same time. He brought Whitfield, he brought the Wesleys, both of them, to meet together at Oxford University where they actually became friends and they became both fervent about exploring the Christian religion. Isn't that amazing? That God brought them all together at the same time. And later on, they, of course, had their own experiences of Christ, and, and they eventually became the leading voices for the church of that century. Uh, soon after, John Wesley returned to Oxford uh, after becoming a curate in Lincolnshire, and naturally, as the more senior of, of the group and one of those who was more educated, he actually took the leadership of this group, which was called, of course, the Holy Club. 
Uh, we've got a, a picture up on the screen of, of Wesley and his friends meeting up in this holy club. And soon enough, they became known by outsiders as the Methodists. That's what everybody else started to call them. And, um, and they concluded and that the term Methodist, and John Wesley kind of grappled with this whole this term, this, this, what this meant. And they, they, they really wanted to just make it mean this. It meant someone who lives according to the method that's laid down in the Bible. It sounds quite simple, doesn't it? A Methodist was someone who lives according to the method that's laid down in the Bible. And so this involved really kind of methodical study, methodical devotion, methodical works. Uh, in fact, there's a story that uh, one day uh, a young man came to John Wesley later on in his ministry um, who was quite critical about John Wesley's methods. Uh, and he said uh, to John Wesley, I don't like your methods. Don't like anything what you, you do. And John said, oh, really? Well, what methods do you use? Or what methods do you subscribe to? And to this, the young man said, well, he didn't really have any. Uh, and John said, well, I prefer my methods to your non-methods. <laughs> but they had a method which involved really religious study of the scriptures, prayer, holiness, and the big one was good works. They had high value for good works. Uh, but the Holy Club didn't just think and pray. They just didn't just to get together and talk about intellectual things. They also visited the prisons. They also visited the poor. All of these good works. In fact, when we look at Wesley's overall uh, ministry life, it seemed that he actually greatly prospered as he gave to the poor. This was something that was probably one of those uh, things, this uh, uh, secret to his, some of his successes. When it came to John Wesley's giving, from the sale of books alone, John Wesley gave away between 30 to 40,000 pounds in his lifetime to the work of the Lord, which is quite a lot. When you go, you know, we're talking about 18th century, that's a lot, isn't it? I'm not so sure what that would be now, but it'd be a lot of money. And he told one of his Methodist preachers in 1787, towards the end of John Wesley's ministry, that he never gave away anything less than 1,000 pounds a year. And that's why, of course, when he died, that, the, that his personal estate uh, amounted only to a few pounds. It wasn't really a lot left. So when earning 30 pounds a year, uh, John, he lived on 28 pounds and then gave the remaining two pounds to the Lord. But then check this out. Next, the next year, his salary doubled. His salary doubled, but he found that he lived comfortably on 28 pounds a year on the same amount. So instead of raising his standard of living... Uh, he continued to live on 28 pounds a year and gave the whole of his increase to God and to the poor. And that's something. And so it would seem that God entrusted him with large and larger amounts as he went on in his ministry. It was John Wesley, I believe, who said these words, and I think R.T. mentioned this last week. People have to go through three conversions. A conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of their pocketbook or their wallet. And so John knew what it was to, 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 to have a life or a path of self-sacrifice. Now, this is an important thing I want to, to really, uh, you to understand today is this, that although the Methodists were devout, although they were, you know, disciplined and they were set on doing all of these good works, none of them were what we were, would say born again. They sought salvation by good works. So in other words, if they do enough, if they do enough good works, that will mean that they are saved. 
And so it was all geared around religion, we might say. It was all geared around what they could do for God. Not a relationship necessarily with, with Christ. And the whole idea that, you know, that we are saved by grace alone, that we're saved by Christ alone, that we're saved by faith alone, is something that was not actually understood by these Methodists, certainly John and Charles Wesley. But this is the whole uh, you know, message that was birthed uh, you know, during the, the great Protestant Reformation. That was through Martin Luther, the great reformer that, you know, that uh, Bruce has been talking about a little bit. He, he was the one that championed this message over 500 years ago in the 16th century. And so he got a revelation about justification by faith, about faith alone. And so Luther, what did he teach? He taught that salvation and eternity in heaven is not earned by good works. That it's only received as a free gift of God's grace through faith in Christ. And so it challenged the authority of the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And as we've, we've heard through Bruce's teaching... This message profoundly impacted the likes of John Knox. Remember the thundering Scot that Bruce was looking at uh, in the 16th century? He also became one who can champion this message of justification by faith in the Protestant Reformation. But almost 200 years later, after the Protestant Reformation, this message had not yet impacted these driven Methodists. Isn't it amazing? It had not actually yet touched their hearts. Who still, they still thought that it was good works that saved them. And so in 1735, as the journey continues, John Wesley uh, decided to become a missionary. And uh, he set off to America with his brother, Charles Wesley, uh, to take uh, their methods uh, under the banner of the Holy Club uh, to these Native Americans. And during this, this three-month voyage, uh, as they were on their way to, to America, he became uh, quite closely acquainted with these Moravians. There was around about 26 of them. And he was so impacted by their humili humility. He re they really impressed him. It's said that whilst they were on board, they were the ones that did all the menial tasks. All the tasks that nobody else wanted to do, the Moravians did. So he was impressed by their, their humility. And so even when a storm actually broke out as they were on that three-month voyage... Uh, when a storm broke out at sea, it was the English, including John and Charles Wesley, that were screaming out in fear. But it was actually the Moravians that were singing out their hymns in praise to God. Isn't that something? And for Wesley, it, be it began this curiosity of the faith that they had. What was it about them that was so different? And so it made an impression upon them. And so when he arrived in America, he met an Amer this Moravian pastor. And this encounter with this Moravian pastor would prove to be a life-changing and a defining time for John Wesley and Charles Wesley. This, this pastor was passionate about leading people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And after a very short time, he saw the state of John Wesley's spiritual condition. And he asked Wesley these questions. These are documented in some of the books that Wesley uh, wrote. He said to Wesley, have you the witness within yourself? Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Do you know Jesus Christ? Isn't it interesting that, that when you remember the prophetic words that his father, Samuel Wesley, said to John Wesley before he died. Talked about the inner witness, didn't he? It was prophetic about what was going to take place in John Wesley's life. 
And this is what John, John Wesley's answer was to this Moravian pastor. He said, I know he's, he is the savior of the world. The pastor responded, well, yes, that may be true, but do you know he saved you? Wesley responded, well, I hope he has died to save me. <laughs> the pastor said, but do you know yourself? To which Wesley lied, saying, I do. But you see, the question never left him. The question remained in his consciousness. It never left. And so during his trip, both John Wesley, Charles Wesley, they sought to enforce all of their religious ideas and their views. Uh, he they taught them all about their methods of prayer and, and, and uh, holiness and good works. Uh, he did this his, his very best, but it hardly had any impact on those Native Americans. He was failing badly. And later on in, in his writings about his life, he said these words, I went to America to convert them, only to realize that I myself was not converted. I mean, what a humbling experience to go through. But this was going to set him up for an encounter with Jesus later on. But he came back a failed missionary. He felt completely, uh, you know, that he had done a terrible job. Uh, but he didn't forget those pastor's words challenging him about his faith. You see, this really, I think, should encourage us when it comes to sowing seeds. When it comes to sowing seeds and questions sometimes to our loved ones and to our friends and to our families about Christ. Remembering that the seeds that we sow into other people's lives are never forgotten. They remember the seeds and the questions that you sow in their hearts and minds. And so God loves to work with that seed. And at some point, that seed is going to germinate, isn't it? And it's going to produce something. Finally, in 1738, three years later, John Wesley was converted. And amazingly, he was actually reading Martin Luther's write-up on the epistle to the Romans. These are the words that he would have read. And we can see them on the screen. And Martin Luther quote, Faith is a constant trust in the mercy of God towards us, by which we cast ourselves entirely on Christ and commit ourselves entirely to him. See, this is what I think is so powerful about church history. Wesley was reading about Luther, who 200 years ago before got a revelation about Jesus Christ. Truth never gets old. Revelation never gets old. Jesus never gets old. It's always relevant. The Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Truth never gets old. And so this is why it's important for us to, to look back on history, just like John Wesley did. And redig the wells of truth, the wells of doctrine. And Wesley famously uh, says his heart was strangely warmed. He trusted in Christ alone for his salvation. He knew his sins had been taken away. Now he had a revelation of Christ. And I think this is a very poignant question for us today and challenges us today. What revelation of Christ are you carrying? Do you just have mere informational knowledge about who Jesus is? Or, or, or do we have a living, breathing, vibrant relationship with Jesus? Have you experienced him in a fresh, a fresh way recently? What's your vision of Jesus? Are you passionate about Jesus Christ? I think it was A.W. Tozer who said uh, that the most important question in your life that you can ever ask is this. What do you think of Jesus? 
What do you think of Jesus? Because our low view of Jesus prevents us from being actually effective in, our, in, in the kingdom life. In other words, the power of our Christian experience is found in interacting with the person of Jesus Christ. And so now John Wesley had a message. He had a message. A message about a person. A message about Jesus Christ. The gospel was burning in his heart. He no longer was passionate about necessarily religion. You know, subscribing to a certain way to live your life, to get through good works and trying to make your life better. It was the gospel that gripped his heart. The gospel which is, you know, entirely based on what Christ has done for us on the cross. A work that took, it was completely outside of man's experience because our faith has to rest on something outside of man's experience. It's called the Christ of history. And this is what John Wesley was experiencing. You know, this series is called Hearts on Fire. How many want your heart on fire? Yeah, this series is all about hearts on fire. This is why we are looking at all these, th these different stories and characters in detail. Well, here was a man whose heart was on fire. No longer passionate and driven by, by good works, but about a person that he had encountered. It reminds us about Paul the Apostle, doesn't it? How on the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with Jesus that completely turned his world upside down. It reminds me of the words of the Paul Apostle who said himself, Christ now lives in me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, now Wesley uh, wanted to preach this message. To everyone, he had truth on fire in his heart. Now, it's important to understand that, that the times that Wesley was living in, the condition, the, uh, the state of the church at the time, it was a time where England um, was noted for its lack of religious enthusiasm. It was an, actually an age of reason at that time for many years, and the churches were known to lack vigor. It was a time where people had become aware of the fact that Christianity was losing its influence, losing its impact. People, yes, were writing their books. People were doing their Christian lectures. But the church seemed quite helpless. It was a hopeless uh, situation. Uh, and so various groups were actually coming, coming together for a few decades uh, before that John Wesley appeared on the scene. And they were asking the question, what can we do to get the authority of the church back? Because the church was losing authority. It was no longer at the cutting edge of the nation. And so they were saying, what can we do to get the authority of the church back? And so uh, he, there, there were attempts to defend the Christian faith uh, through argument, trying to recover the authority of the Bible and, and the gospel. They said, we must do something. We must change the environment that, that, that the nation is in. And so the context, it's important for us to understand the context uh, within England that Wesley came into as a nation because it was uh, said to be in a spiritual and moral quagmire. In other words, it was very difficult. It was a mess. One bishop, at, one bishop at that time said that religion and morality in Britain had collapsed to a degree that was never known before in any Christian country. That's how bad things had, had gotten. In fact, when John and, and Charles Wesley founded the Holy Club at Oxford about 15 years before, 17 years before, not more than five or six uh, members of the House of Commons actually even went to church at all. And so that just gives you an idea of the, of the spiritual state of the nation. 
But as we, we will see as we journey on, it was not the lectures, it was not defending the Christian faith through arguments that reestablished the position of the church uh, uh, and restored her authority back to the nation, but it was the Holy Spirit's authority moving through the lives of Wesley and George Whitfield and Charles Wesley. It was these reformers, it was these revivalists, these preachers that God raised up, and may he do it again in our generation. In other words, what man failed to do, God himself brought about in his own way. And it just teaches us today that, you know, whilst defending the Christian gospel and, and the Christian faith and using argument and teaching is all important, those important things that we give ourselves to, it is only the presence and the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that can restore the authority and the position of the church back in our nation. It's only the presence and power of the Holy Spirit moving through the church. Whitfield um, had his own experience of Christ. I don't have time to go into some of that, but he had his own experience of, uh, of experiencing him. And he started preaching to the masses. But he had been, had been banned from preaching in church buildings. And so what happened is, is he began preaching to the masses of peoples in the fields and the parks. So he thought, you know, if you don't, you're going to ban me from the buildings, I'll go out there and preach to them. And uh, John Wesley, at the age of 37 began to travel and to preach. We have a picture of uh, John Wesley preaching outdoors. And in 1739, John Wesley preached his first sermon at a brickyard in Bristol to 3,000 people. How I many know that's quite a lot to do your first sermon? <laughs> and, um, and so it's kind of like Peter in the book of Acts. You know, his first sermon, 3,000 people get added to the kingdom. And so he preached his first sermon to 3,000 people outdoors. So not a bad start. And then all of a sudden... Within a few short weeks, he was preaching to over 30,000 people in Bristol. And so this is where he began. And so the buildings were not even big enough to actually host this many people anyway. So it's just as well that they banned them from the buildings. Wesley was famous for saying these words. When you set yourself on fire, people love to come and see you burn. When you set yourself on fire, people love to come and watch you burn. Both him and Whitfield were told that they were, were not allowed to preach outdoors either. And um, on one occasion, Wesley said this, and you can see it up on the screen. Wesley stated, God in Scripture commands me, according to my power, to instruct the ignorant, reform the wicked, confirm the virtuous. Man forbids me to, forbids me to do this in another's parish. That is, in effect, to do it not at all. Seeing as I have now no parish of my own, nor probably ever shall. Whom then shall hear God or man? I look upon the world as my parish, and I judge it meet, right, and my bounden duty to declare unto all that are willing to hear the glad tidings of salvation. Isn't that boldness right there? Mind you about the disciples in the early church, when they were told not to preach, what happened? They prayed for more boldness to preach the gospel. And so this was John Wesley's approach. John Wesley said, the world is my parish. Not just my small community or my hood, you know. The whole world is my parish. And so there were all kinds of revival manifestations that broke out during Wesley's uh, outdoor preaching to the thousands. People were falling on the ground under the power of God. It's quite an amazing scene, wouldn't it? To see all these thousands of people being under the power of God in the fields and the parks. People were shaking. 
Uh, people were screaming and weeping as the Holy Spirit was moving. People were be deli- being delivered from the, from the demonic things. And I think when we think about and reflect upon these things, these things should encourage us. How many does that encourage? It should encourage us because one day, I believe personally, and I know many of you will do as well, that our buildings will not be big enough one day to host the masses of people that come to hear the gospel. And everything that God wants to do, one, one day, I believe the stadiums will be filled with the masses of people coming and hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel and seeing signs and wonders. And as one prophetic man once said, who's still alive, it will feature even on the news about what God is doing. In other words, we don't have any uh, you know, bad news to tell tonight, only good news. People are being raised from the dead. Paralytics are walking. People who are sick for years are coming. They're coming in their droves from the hospitals. And they're being healed and they're being made whole. So John Wesley was speaking to tens of thousands. All of these manifestation phenomena was, was taking place. But one of the key features of John Wesley's ministry was his commitment to retaining the harvest. And... Um, this was one of a, a very big highlight of his ministry. In other words, not losing the harvest that had actually been reaped. Uh, and so what did he do? He started what were called society classes. That's what they called them back now. Back then, that's we would probably call them cells today or home groups, wherever, whatever terminology people like to use. And this is an, an important principle that we must embrace today. It says statistically today that 90% of people worldwide who, who make responses to Christ never follow through with it. That's not to say they're not saved, but they are not consolidated and looked after. And so they never become effective disciples for Christ. And so uh, how many know that God doesn't, doesn't just want Christians or believers? He wants disciples. Uh, and so he wants disciples for Christ who are actively following him and his example. And so these society classes, they were based around discipleship. Uh, where these believers, men, women, single, married, uh, they were meeting together every week. They were doing life together. Uh, discipleship was personal. And th- so these members, they told one another of their temptations, their weaknesses. And so they got real. Uh, and they, they were talking about their temptations, triumphs, their faults. And so this was one of the first, you know, society classes that were rising up. They would start springing up all over the country. Um, you know, following the thousands of people that were being converted through Wesley's preaching. And so they met everywhere. All of these were meeting all around the nation. And so you can see that Wesley, he had a commitment to discipleship. He also had a lifestyle of discipleship and had hundreds of members who he, he would actually visit personally. He would go to their homes and see how they're doing. He would examine them to see how they're doing personally in their, in their faith and their spiritual growth. And these were some of the effects on, on his congregation, these people that were getting saved. The swearing stopped in the factories and the workplaces. Men and women began to concern themselves with proper dress. Neighbors gave one another mutual help through the society. Sounds a little bit like early church, doesn't it? And so this Methodist movement was spreading. It was moving at such a massive pace. It was growing. Leaders who were not even ordained were, were met, they met the disciples every week to, in, to encourage them. And these society groups, when they got together, they were confronted with a number of questions. Here are some of them. They would say, how many people have you witnessed to? How many sick people were visited? How many of the poor did you reach out to? What have you done for Christ this week? What have you lacked for Christ 
this week. Very challenging questions, aren't they? These are the questions that would happen within the society groups. And it only serves to, you know, as a reminder to us today that this model is, you know, is likely the most effective model of, of discipleship, of maturing disciples. This one-on-one personal discipleship where every member uh, becomes not only a disciple but a disciple maker. Because only disciples can make disciples. They become leaders, become active participants in the body of Christ, not just spectators. Uh, which is why here at KT, of course, we are a cell-based uh, church making disciples. And so what happened is many converts were rising up all around the nation. Uh, and also to preach the gospel in their areas and their communities or their parish. And this was actually causing some problems amongst the clergy and the denominational leaders. Because they were saying, well, you know, well, they're uneducated. They're unqualified for the job. Kind of sounds like the early church, doesn't it? Like the disciples, about what these religious leaders said about the disciples, where they're unqualified, they're unlearned, they're uneducated. They shouldn't be doing all of that stuff. They, they haven't got any qualifications or badges or titles or positions. But Jesus used these to birth his early church, amen? And he still continues to use sometimes the weak to confound the strong. He uses the weak to do things for his kingdom. And so as far as, as John Wesley was concerned, um, as long as these preachers, these leaders that were rising up, had these three things. They, they, they have the love of God in their hearts. They have the gifts and grace for the work. And also people being saved under their ministry. Those three things. John said, as long as these marks occur in any way, we allow him to be called of God to preach. Isn't that great? We allow him to, be pre to, to preach the word. He also had very high expectations of, of his preachers that grew out of his movement, these disciples. He said these three things. Believe evil of no one unless you see it done. Secondly, be punctual. Oh, that, that hurts. Be punctual. Do everything at the right time. I have to write that one down. Thirdly, you have nothing to do but to save souls. You have nothing to do but to save souls. I mean, think about that. I wonder what the church would look like if we really took on those principles. Every one of us. And so throughout all of this growing Methodist movement, Wesley stuck to his guns. He never would leave the Church of England. Um, he never intended to form a separate church from the Anglican Church. He was committed to the Church of England. It was actually only after his death that, um, that his followers actually did make a clean break from, from the established church. But when we consider the life of John Wesley, we see that he left such an incredible legacy. As I said earlier, he had a huge influence on British, you know, religious and social history in the 19th century, the century after. For example, amongst some of the, the greatest successes was the Sunday schools uh, for children. Uh, first started in 1783, towards the end of John Wesley's ministry, started by the Methodists. And within just three years, over 200,000 children were attending Sunday schools in England. Isn't that amazing? That's growth. And so they were springing up everywhere that he went. And so it just shows that John Wesley did have, actually have a heart for children. He had a heart for youth. You know, they were the future church, or today's church, in fact, then. But John Wesley was a revivalist. He carried the message of revival. He had a heart to reach sinners. And whenever he kind of observed laziness or he saw lukewarmness or backsliding, he, he sought to restoke the, the fires of revival. And um, one of the convictions that he preached hard against, that he felt was a real danger to the church, uh, was spiritual idolatry. 
following on from the scripture, 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So he taught that the pursuit of happiness and pleasure outside of God was idolatry. That God is the real source whom we must, you know, seek after uh, as first place. Him being the main desire of our hearts and everything else becoming second place. Amen? Which really is, is something that is really being brought to our attention through the Soul Talk course at the moment. About, you know, first things being first and second things being second. God being the first desire of our hearts. John Wesley also placed huge value and importance on Christian ministry. We can see up on the screen a quote by, uh, by John Wesley. And when it came to ministry and witness, he said this, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. There's a lot of cans there. And so he, he, he elevated ministry to another level. He taught that ministry was valuable. It was very important to Jesus. Some have also said that the greatest success of Methodism was not among the rich and the successful, but amongst the poor. And even as Bruce Atkinson has been speaking about this in the last few weeks, about how these, these figures that God raised up, very much their ministry sometimes was not to those who were the rich, but it was to the poor. Just reminds us of Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? That he came to preach good news to the, to the poor. Those are the people he sought to reach. Wesley died in the year 1791. And it's calculated that uh, by that time that 72,000 uh, people in Britain were members uh, in this movement. And that's active members, not just, you know, stay-at-home, inactive members, spectators. But the, the total of registered members, including in America, was 136,000. But check this. Unregistered members to Methodism were estimated at being over 800,000. So we're talking a lot of people, a lot of influence. During his ministry, he traveled 250,000 miles in 40 years which is a lot for, of course, 18th century. Much of this was on horseback. Uh, in fact, he sometimes covered 60 miles a day on horseback. How many know that's a lot, that's a lot of miles on horse? And in fact, I've heard it said before that, um, that there were two things that John Wesley really loved. There was a good pair of shoes and a good horse. And so he, of course, was very reliant on both of those two. But weather conditions also had made no difference to his ministry. Sometimes he would be... Uh, he would have to flee from an angry mob uh, uh, that by jumping into a cold pond. And then he would s swim out of the pond and then go on preach again. Uh, and so he was under persecution a lot of the time. But he preached 40,000 sermons in his lifetime. And wrote 400 books. He averaged 15 sermons a week. He translated hymns. He interpreted scripture. Wrote hundreds of letters, trained hundreds of men and women in ministry. His own brother, Charles Wesley, uh, also stands in his own right as, uh, as writing over 5,000 hymns. How many? That's a lot of hymns. That's a lot of songs. When I think about that, it blows my mind. 5,000 hymns, and a lot of those were on horseback too. And so this was during his ministry, many of which were being sung throughout the Methodist churches. Uh, and so worship was actually a key feature of the Methodist movement as well. Don't forget that. Worship was a key feature. So the message that was being preached by John Wesley was actually being put into song. The gospel was being put into song. And so we see this was actually a, a, being a key feature 
in many revivals of the Christian church. If you look down through the ages, whenever God moves, new songs and melodies are released. And so it's incredible, isn't it, how, you know, how much both of these brothers achieve together. And it's wonderful, isn't it, to have that brother partnership. And we've seen that, you know, in church history before, how God has raised up brothers and even sisters together to minister to one another, to minister to, to their nations. When John was 83, coming into close now, but when John was 83, he apparently complained that he was unable to write for more than 15 hours a day without hurting his eyes. When he was 86, he was ashamed he could not preach more than twice a day. And so, that's a day, not a week. And so, whilst it may be said that George Whitfield, the great harvester of souls, was, you know, he impacted our country with great oratory and great preaching, it was John Wesley's ministry that put a foundation of righteousness in our nation, much of which that we have benefited from today. He left such a, an amazing legacy. Although John Wesley is, is largely remembered as being, you know, the, the founder of the Methodist movement, which was this, of course, highly successful evangelical revival movement within the UK and beyond, his effect on Great Britain went far beyond evangelism. And this is important that we get a hold of this. And this is a key point. Wesley's understanding of Christianity was that individual personal redemption or individual personal salvation leads to social regeneration. Let me say that again. Individual personal salvation leads to social regeneration. He thought that national reform and transformation should be a byproduct of individuals' lives being transformed by Christ. In other words, it affects your home, it affects your workplace, it affects society. And so John Wesley's legacy includes so many different things. His impact includes the following. If you just look up on the screen, as a John Wesley's legacy, uh, there was a library of published books, including Bible commentaries and books which shaped British culture. English, French, Latin, Greek, Hebrew grammars. Uh, he con contributed to the liberation of women. And all the women went, woohoo, amen. And the beginnings of workers' rights and safety in the workplace. He attacked slavery before the reformer, William Wilberforce, was born. He fought for civil and religious freedom. He brought awareness of the evils of exploiting the poor and campaigned against bribery and corruption. All of these things, open medical clinics, shelter for widows, knitting shops, studied medicine. Isn't that something? He even studied medicine uh, in order to help the destitute. And so there were all these social and these charitable activities that were a part and parcel of his ministry. And so some historians, this is why they believe that this, this renewal movement, the Methodist movement uh, by John Wesley and his brother, uh, Charles Wesley, it prevented some of the, something uh, uh, similar to the French Revolution taking place in England, preventing widespread you know, social unrest around the nation. And as I said, John Wesley died in 1791, and he preached his last sermon at an open-air meeting just four months before his death. But we see from his legacy that, you know, he was not, it was not just limited to his century. It was not just limited to this country. But it survives today in, in the face of millions of believers worldwide today, in churches worldwide. But he was a man who, who, whose heart was on fire for the Lord. 
This is what we can take from his life, his legacy. He was a man whose heart was on fire for Jesus. He had encountered Jesus, and he was never the same again. And this must inspire us. It must challenge us. It inspires me. It challenges me to have those whose hearts are burning in the same way for him. Because our generation can only be changed by truth that is set on fire. It can only be changed by the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is still speak, seeking to raise up, you know, uh, men and women with the, the like-hearted uh, spirit, the like-heartedness in our generation to have an impact and to see a revival of Christianity in our land. Amen? Well, next week, uh, our associate Bruce, he's going to be back, and um, he's going to be continuing our series and looking at the, the topic, the primitive Methodist, so looking a little bit further beyond and we're really praying that during this series, you know, that God will really light a flame in your, in your heart, that, that, you know, something will be just lit ablaze. Amen? Everybody want that? Keep on praying for it during this series. Don't just come and listen. Ask God to put a flame within your heart, to set your heart on fire, and to use you in this generation. God bless you.